The scripture reading is from John 2, verses 13 through 25. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you are going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Now while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. This is the word of the Lord. So it seems to me that the key issue in this passage is that of authority. Does Jesus or does he not have authority over us? You'll notice here that when Christ goes into the temple and he turns over the tables and he drives out the, uh, the merchandisers, You'll notice that the people who confront Jesus, they're, they're not really bothered by his anger. Um, they're, not, uh, they're not worried about his treatment of the animals. No, look at this. What concerns them is authority. Verse, verse 18, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? In other words, they're, they're saying, Jesus, what gives you the right to march in here and take charge like this. What gives you the right to do this? Now, with their, their question in mind, I want to today just touch on three different thoughts. First, I want to talk about the authority that Jesus claims to have, his authority that he's claiming. Secondly, I want to talk about the proof that he gives of that authority. So the authority he claims, the proof he gives. And then third, I just want to talk about why this is good news. It may, may not sound like good news for Jesus to want to take charge of things, but I want to talk about why this is really good news for us. So we'll start with the authority that Christ claims. Uh, we're told in verse 13 through 14 that Jesus went up to Jerusalem to the temple courts. And you probably know that the temple in Jerusalem was considered in the first century by Jewish people to be the most sacred place in the world. Thousands of Jewish people every year from all over the world would travel hundreds and hundreds of miles just to worship 
in the temple in Jerusalem. The, uh, the temple had been deliberately constructed to reflect instructions that God himself had given to Moses in the book of Exodus and then again to uh, Solomon in 1 Kings. In other words, the layout of the temple, the, the floor plan of the building was of divine, not human origin. Strict laws governed who could have access to the temple, which parts of the temple they could enter, when they were permitted to go there, when they were not allowed to go there. So it, it, it was the strict governance of the temple and desecration of the, of the temple was a capital offense. Now, why was this one building so important? Well, I'll tell you why. Because the temple was considered to be the house of the living God. This was God's house. Now, I would, I would not go to your house or your apartment without permission and just go in and, you know, paint the walls my favorite colors and rearrange the furniture and then go through your stuff and throw out anything that I don't think is necessary. I would not do that in your house. Why? Because it's your house. It's not mine, Right? But Jesus basically does that in the house of God. He just goes in to God's house and starts rearranging things as if it's his own home, his own family home. Look, look, look at what Christ says with me at verse 16. Did you see what he said? In verse 16, what, what does Jesus say as he's throwing the merchants out of the temple? D did he say, stop turning God's house into a market? No, it's not what he said. He said, stop turning my father's house into a market. He's, he's calling God his own father. And this is not just in some kind of flowery religious language sort of sense, you know, God is the father of all of us. No, he is saying God is my own personal father. And understand this, in the context of that time, to call God your own father was blasphemy of the highest order, if it's not true. Late, later, a few chapters later in John chapter 5, verse 18, it says, For this reason, they tried all the more to kill Jesus. Why? It says he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So this is what's going on in, the, in this passage. This is not just a temper tra tantrum of Jesus, you know, one particular day at the temple. No, in this passage, both by his words and through his actions, Jesus is claiming to possess divine authority. He is, he is telling the world that he is Lord. Okay, now, what does that mean for you and me? Well, listen, what Jesus did in that temple... He claims the right to do in our lives. What he did in that temple, he claims the right to do in your life, to just come in and clean, listen, clean out anything in your life that he thinks shouldn't be there, to overturn anything in your life that he thinks shouldn't be standing, to call you to repent, to command you to obey. He, he claims the right to demand of every one of us that, listen, as he does so frequently, that we take up our cross and follow him. You notice in this passage, Jesus didn't ask permission. Is it okay if I kind of get these little sheep out of here? He doesn't ask permission. He doesn't even give much of an explanation. 
he just marches in and he takes over. And understand this, guys, this is what he demands to do in our lives. One, one author put it this way. He wrote, Jesus is not offering a makeover. He is calling for a takeover. Right? He just takes over. He claims, he claims the absolute right to the full devotion and the unconditional obedience of every person in the world. A way to put that is, he claims to be Lord. So that's the authority Jesus is claiming here. Now, secondly, what proof does he give that he has this authority? That's, that's, the, that's the question that people ask, and I don't know how you feel about it, but to me, it seems like a pretty fair question. End of verse 18, they say, what, what sign can you show to prove your authority to do this? You, you look like a carpenter from up in Galilee. You march into the, the, the temple and take over like it's your own home. What, what, authority, what, what proof can you give us that you really have this authority? Well, what does Jesus say? Here's what he says, verse 19. He says, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days understandably, they are confused by that. I would have been confused by that too. I mean, the temple, it's hard for us to envision the, the immensity of this building. It, the, the construction of the temple in Jerusalem began in 20 B.C. under the direction of, of uh, King Herod the Great. It took over 46 years to make that. So it's this, it's this enormous structure. It would have taken the labor of thousands and thousands, generations of workers, decades to build. And Jesus says, um, tear this down, three days, I'll build it back up again. They say to him, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. You're going to raise it in three days? What they didn't know, verse 21, is that the temple he spoke of was his body. He's talking about his own body. In other words, cryptically, this is what Christ is saying to them. He's saying, would you like to know whether or not I truly have the authority to march in anywhere I want, even the house of the living God, and take over? Would you like to know if I have that authority? Here's the way you can find out. Kill me. Kill me, seal my body in a tomb. If I stay dead like every other human who's ever walked this planet before me, if I stay dead, you can forget about everything I ever said to you. He said, but if three days later I walk out of that tomb, you better bend the knee. You better bend the knee. There's a character in an old, in an old uh, short story by Flannery O'Connor who puts it this way. He says, if Jesus did what he said, then there's nothing for you to do but throw away everything and follow him. And if he didn't, then there's nothing for you to do but enjoy the few minutes you've got left the best you can. In other words, that, that character is saying, if Jesus rose, he's Lord. Bow the knee before him. If he didn't, there's no reason to be in church today, right? That's the proof Christ gives. He says, I, I demand your absolute allegiance. I demand your unconditional obedience. And if you want proof that I have the right to do this, he says, destroy this temple and I will raise it in three days. There's a, an author named Lee Strobel. Lee Strobel is a graduate of Yale Law School. He was the legal editor for the Chicago Tribune. In other words, he's a very, obviously very intelligent, well-educated man. 
and Lee Strobel was a committed, very outspoken atheist. In the late 1980s, Lee Strobel's wife, who was herself an agnostic, became a Christian. Strobel was outraged by this. He didn't want his wife joining some kind of Jesus cult, is what he called it. So he decided to do some research so he could prove to his wife that she should not be a Christian. So just using his legal training, his years of experience as a journalist, he began to research just to prove that the message of the New Testament was false. One year and nine months later, Strobel himself became a Christian. Apparently, as he did his research, the, the historical evidence that he found of the, of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it just overwhelmed him. This is one thing he said. He said, to be an atheist, I would have to swim upstream against a torrent of evidence pointing toward the truth of Jesus Christ. He said, I couldn't do that. I was trained in journalism and in law to respond to truth. If you're, if you're still unconvinced of the claims of Christ, I wonder what you would discover if you were to make an earnest study of the historical evidence and really read what the Bible says about the resurrection of Christ from the dead. This is what Jesus said. This is the proof. Don't believe me just because I say it. He says, this is the proof. I am the Lord of the universe. He says, I will rise from the dead. That's what convinced the early Christians to follow him. They didn't become Christians just because they wanted to. Many of them lost everything they had to follow Jesus. They were convinced he is the Lord because he rose. In Acts 17, verse 31, the apostles said this. They said, God has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. God has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. So Jesus claims absolute authority. He says the proof is his resurrection. Now, the third thought. Why is this good news? This, this, this call to you to turn over control of your life to Jesus. Why is that? It doesn't sound, does it sound like good news? It give, submit, follow, obey, give everything to Jesus. That can sound a little bit intimidating, especially when you realize we're not just talking about some kind of abstract idea. Okay, uh, Jesus is my homeboy. I love Jesus. I'll do what, If he ever comes and tells me to do something, I'll do it. No, this is not an abstract idea. To, to give Jesus control of your life, it means at a very minimum, it means to submit to the authority of Scripture. The reason I say that, if you read the four Gospels, look at the way Jesus used and spoke of Scripture. Jesus viewed Scripture as the binding, decisive, authoritative Word of God. You can't, you can't say, oh, I follow Jesus, but I don't follow the Bible. That makes no sense. Jesus said in John 10, 35, he said, Scripture cannot be set aside. Now, it's interesting to me to notice in verse 22 that after the resurrection, when the disciples placed their trust in Jesus, it says they also placed their trust in Scripture. Did you notice that? After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the Scripture and the words Jesus had spoken. So to submit to the Lordship of Jesus, what does it mean? At a very minimum, 
It means that when something's clearly uh, expressed in the Word of God, this is what we're to believe. This is what we're to do. It, it, it means to accept that as the authority of your life. And can I just be honest? That's frightening. That, that, that can be very troubling. Ask anyone who's followed Jesus for very long at all, and they will tell you that frequently the Bible calls us well, it calls us to make sacrifices that are very costly. Has that ever happened with you? Or it calls us to make, make changes in our life that are very hard. It, it calls us to forgive those who've hurt us, right? That's not easy. It calls us to love people who don't love us back. So the, the Word of God calls us to very difficult things. So why, why is it good news to submit to Jesus and to submit to his word. Let me give you two reasons why, as frightening as, this, as frightening as this might sound, this is really good. Two reasons why it's good news. First, because Jesus is wise. Second, because he is loving. All right, so, so notice, he's wise. He, here's what I mean by that, and uh, what I'm about to say, this, all right, this might offend you, but I'm just going to say it. Jesus knows what's best for you. He knows what's best for you better than you do. He knows you better than you know yourself. Look, look, look at verse 23 to 25. It says, Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name, but Jesus would not entrust himself to them. In other words, Jesus wouldn't just, um, he, he wouldn't let the public, the people, set the agenda for his ministry. He wouldn't let these people call the shots. He wouldn't let them make the decisions. Why? It says, well, here's why. For he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind. He knew what was in each person. He, he knows what's in you. He knows what's in me. And because of that, he won't give us the keys to the car. He won't let, he says, the reason I don't want you making all the decisions for your life is because if I let you do that, you'll ruin things. You, he knows, he knows the weaknesses in us. Now under, understand this, when I say Jesus knows you, I mean he knows everything about you. He knows your deepest dreams. He, he, he knows your biggest fears. He knows things about you that you would be ashamed if anyone knew them. He, he knows the intricacies and the deepest aspects of your soul. He knows you better than you know you. Jesus, Jesus sees your future as clearly as you can see your past. He understands you better than anyone. It's not bad news for someone that wise and that knowing to direct the paths of your life. It's not. Let, let's, let's say that you are diagnosed with a very, very serious disease and the best doctor in the world agrees to be your physician. That would be good news. Why? Because he or she knows what they're doing. Listen. There is no physician of the soul, no physician of the soul better than Jesus. He knows everything about you, everything about life. 
He's, he's someone whom you can trust to guide your steps. So one reason this whole call to submit to his lordship is not bad news, it's good, is because he is, he is infinitely wise. The second reason is because he is infinitely loving. This, isn't this something that this one who knows everything about you, even your deepest, darkest secrets, he loves you. Oh, he loves you. It, when, when Jesus in verse 19 says, destroy this temple and I'll raise it again in three days. When he says this, he's not just kind of offering some hypothetical idea for them to ponder about his authority. No, when he did this, he was giving his enemies the very ammunition that they would need to destroy him. You see, at, at the end of his life, um, when his enemies wanted to kill Jesus, you may know the story. He's arrested, he's dragged before the Sanhedrin, he's put on trial, and they, they really can't find any charge to bring against him to kill him. They can't think of anything that they could charge him with that would be worthy of death. And then somebody says, you'll read this in Matthew 26, somebody says, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I once heard him call for the destruction of the temple. I heard it with my own ears. He called people to destroy the temple. Now, they're twisting his words, right? But that was the charge they used to kill him. So when Jesus says this, he's not just merely offering a hypothetical idea. He's putting bullets in the gun that they will shoot him with. He's, he's giving them the very ammunition they need to destroy him. Someone says, wait a minute, that sounds like, almost sounds like he's choosing to die. He was. A few chapters later, John 10, verse 18, Jesus said, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. He chose to die. Why did he choose to die? Oh my, if you trust him, let me tell you why. He chose to die because he loves you. He knows you better than anyone, better than you know yourself, and he loves you more than you love yourself. The testimony of Scripture is that the reason Jesus came to die was analogous to the reason why priests were taking those sheep and cattle into the temple to sacrifice them. They, they offered those sheep as an atonement so that the people could be forgiven and accepted by God. Jesus comes and he says, you know what? I'm the temple now. I am the temple and the sacrifice to be given will be my life so that anyone who trusts in me will be restored to God's favor and know his blessing and his life forever. If you trust him, listen to me. He did that for you. So I don't know um, what particular issue of obedience you might be wrestling with right now. And any honest Christian will tell you my following Jesus is not easy. There, there are times when picking up the cross and laying down our own agenda and letting him be Lord is really, really very difficult, isn't it? But whatever issue of obedience you might be wrestling with, is he calling you to repent? Is he calling you to forgive somebody? Is he calling you to leave something behind? Listen, the one who calls you is the Lord of the universe. He proved that. He rose from the dead. And he's one who knows you and loves you more than anyone ever will. What I mean by that is you can trust him, right? You can trust him. Let's, let's pray together.
Jesus, we sang before that song about having taken up our cross to follow you. That is the desire of our heart to do that. We know that our own weak and unreliable um, hearts will trip us up. We know that the devil will accuse us. We know that the world will oppose us. But we hear your call. And so we ask for strength and grace and power from the Holy Spirit to trust your wisdom, to trust your love, and to bend our knee before you as our Lord and our God. Amen.